Messages is sponsored by Volvo. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. Go to volvocars.com slash US. It's Wednesday, July 8th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So, I reacted to Jared from Subway. That news couple things. One, kitty porn's not funny. Two, there's a presumption of innocence. Three, everyone's already made the same jokes. Jared had big pants, right? I just want to point out the perversion of Jared has nothing to do with what he did or didn't do related to kids or kitty porn or foot-long puns. The perversion of Jared is that he existed at all for as long as he did. It is weird. Think about this. It is a weird thing in America that the following conversation could happen, like at a Jared high school reunion with a, with a guy I went to high school with and has been living out of the country for 17 years. Hey, Jared, Jared Fogel, it's been a long time. What you up to? I lost a lot of weight. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see that. You're looking good, man. So what you been up to? I, I, I lost weight. Oh, yeah, I know that, buddy. But, uh, you know, I've been out of the country for 20 years. Maybe the expressions have changed. I mean, what do you do for a living? I, I lost a lot of weight. What? Yeah, that's my job. I used to be fat. I once weighed a lot. Now I'm not fat anymore. Wait, that's a job? It is for me. All right, how do you get that job? All right, well, since you asked. Well, you got to lose a lot of weight using one method, one method only, and that method can't actually really work in the real world just by itself. But the thing is, the method not working winds up being a good thing. Because if the method did work, then there'd be a whole bunch of other people who lost weight that way, and they wouldn't need you anymore. And you also gotta stick by your story hard. So in a way, I'm like one of those ex-gay activists or the five-year-old who died and went to heaven. They need you. you. You're the only one. But unlike the kid who went to heaven, I have a memento. The biggest part of this thing that I got going, I kept the pants. Ah, you gotta keep the pants. That's what I'm saying. You gotta keep the pants. And you also gotta stay thin. No, no, look at me. I got man boobs. I am doughy. Whole wheat, seven grain, flatbread doughy. I just kept the pants. I'm Jared. America is great. Or was for him up until a couple days ago. In the show today, I spiel about Hillary Clinton's reluctance to have a take on much about anything. And we'll talk about all the trouble in the world and why it shouldn't necessarily trouble you that much. But first, the entire music business is changing the way it does business. Tuesday's Gone with the Rain, a song lyric that if remixed anew by Wiz Khalifa, you would have to wait until Friday to hear. There's a new moon on Monday, Duran Duran said back in the 80s. But you know when they said it? Oh, I don't know the exact year. I mean the day of the week. They said it on a Tuesday because that's when all new music is or was released. New Music Tuesday everywhere across the United States. That's when the new albums dropped. But just as the idea of albums have been dropping, so has Tuesday as the day of the week for all new music. It's now going to be Friday. Brings up a number of questions, and here to answer them is Franny Kelly. She hosts Microphone Check, this podcast on uh, NPR. And she's also the CEO. What's this new thing, Franny? Editor-in-chief of Yours Truly. She's the editor-in-chief <laughs> of Yours Truly, where they uh, take recording artists and kind of 
dump their brains out onto a really cool computer screen. But we want to talk about New Music Tuesday. And the first, you know, this was, was this the biggest thing you ever wrote trying to figure out why it was Tuesday that all new music was released? It's certainly been the thing that I've wrote that has been most picked up by everybody from Business Insider to Bitter Southerner. And it's like, yeah, it's like pretty high up there if you Google my name, I believe. The reason that so many people have glommed onto it is not that it was this winding tale that leaves you in a place that you can't believe. I will now read. Well, listen, I'll now read the first sentence. Headline, why albums are released on Tuesdays in the U.S. First sentence, honestly, no one seems to know for sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. So given that, I like how you tried to figure it out. Process of elimination. Let's eliminate the six other uh, suspects. Why not another day? Well, it all has to do with restocking, basically, which is like people need to ship the physical product to the stores. There were problems sort of always like guaranteeing that they'd get there on Sunday so that they could be stocked that night and be out on Monday. So they put in that extra day of padding. It just became Tuesdays. And also, like, the labels agreed to this because they wanted to, it to be a level playing field. Yes, I get that. So it's right. So it's good to have a day that everyone agrees on. Now it's going to be Friday. I mean, this Friday is the first Friday. Yeah. But in your article, you say that it's too late in the week. People were worried about sales being too late in the week. And so since the article was written in 2010, sales in a store, does that is that a thing anymore? I mean, is that a not, worry still? not so much. But that is sort of the complaint of people that own brick-and-mortar stores, which is that with, with the Tuesday thing, you had two bumps. Friday is the most trafficked, like both online and in the stores, day of the week. And so the, the idea with the Tuesday was like you got those people that were super fans, that were like committed and knew the date would show up, and then you'd also get weekend traffic. Now the idea from the IFPI seems to be that you get the social media traffic on Friday mm-hmm. and the foot traffic, and you would sort of build momentum. I guess an argument against it is movies already own Fridays in terms of mind share. And payday share. Yeah. Is the, is the idea of even an embargo, given this era of mixtapes, given this era of uh, file sharing, is that an anachronism? Yes. I, I think it's pretty dumb. <laughs> However, there is this idea of momentum, sort of building the excitement, having this thing that we all do together, and then like you see all your people that you follow getting hype about it. That is real, I think. And that, that to me makes sense with the IFPI's decision. Like If you draw something on Friday, there is a lot of social media activity, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It just builds and builds, and people are sort of swayed. So the history of Tuesday as a release date, lost as it is, murky as it is, decided by an executive, momentum eventually builds. How did that help the music industry all these years, if it did? It helped because of the restocking stuff. And Mm -hmm. it helped because people want to do album release day events. And then part of the appeal of having different release days in different countries is that you could sort of ship your artist around the country and you could hit like France on Monday here Tuesday, or ship your artists Japan the world. on Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess Australia on Friday, that kind of thing. So I guess that was the plan, and then also for the charts, so everybody there's a fair playing field. Mm-hmm. What are unintended consequences? I think the thing to remember in this whole thing is that the industry is is continually cratering. And the people who are figuring it out is the musicians themselves who are super serving their fan bases. And then like the huge, huge acts who actually maybe don't need to give a percentage to anybody, don't need any type of like upfront money to just drop it when they feel is best. And if, you know, 
as Beyonce goes, so goes the rest of the industry. And so I guess what you're highlighting is the fact that it's not so much that the universal release date has changed. It's that it's far from universal. Yeah, very fair. Yeah. Franny Kelly, along with Ali Shahid Muhammad, is the host of the Microphone Check podcast. Thank you, Franny. Thank you, Mike. On a Tuesday, got your girl in the cut, she choosing club going up. On a Tuesday, got your girl in the cut, she choosing club going up. So there are two types of interviews I love to do on the show. One is when a smart person disagrees with me and we could hash it out. But secretly, there's another type of interview I really love. It's when a smart person writes something I totally agree with and I'm saying, yes, yes, yes. Stephen Walt wrote such an essay in Foreign Policy. He wrote it. It's sort of almost like a slow jam to America because its title is Chill Out America. TV news, think tank pundits and politicians all want you to see threats around every corner. Don't fall for it. Here, Stephen Walt is going, it's going to be cool, baby. I got you, all right. You're fine, America. You got it all under control. Hello, Stephen Walt. How are you? I'm just fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm fine. Like, America is fine. But like politicians of all stripes, especially any of the 87 running for president on the Republican side, are telling us these are very, very dire times. Why do you say, yeah, there are threats, but they're not so bad? Well, first of all, the United States and Americans need to understand how unusual America's position is. You know, we still have the world's largest economy. We have military forces that are second to none. We spend more on the defense than, you know, the next 10 or 12 countries put together. We have thousands of nuclear weapons, so nobody's going to attack us in any uh, large-scale way. And we're still protected from many dangers in various parts of the world by these two enormous moats, the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. So if you look at the actual dangers that the United States faces and compare it to some of the problems that other countries face, uh, the United States really couldn't ask for much more, and almost any country would want to trade places with us. We lose sight of that constantly. ISIS. My take, they're certainly a threat. It would be great if uh, their rampage in that region were to be diminished. They need to be fought, but you know, let's not fear them, and they're not coming to our shores tomorrow. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's better to call them a problem. I mean, first of all, they're obviously a curse to anyone living under their rule now, and they can cause problems in their immediate region. They're going to spawn some number of lone wolf imitators in various places. But, you know, we ought to put this in perspective. The total number of deaths caused by ISIS or ISIS-related people outside of the immediate area they control is perhaps 300 so far. I I don't want to belittle those deaths, but, you know, again, keep that uh, in perspective relative to all of the other dangers. You know, more people die in the United States every year by slipping in their bathtubs than have been killed by ISIS sympathizers outside, again, their immediate region. And by the way, most of those deaths have happened in places like Libya and Yemen. It's not to say that this isn't a problem, but it's not an existential or mortal threat unless we turn it into one. Right. Well, first of all, a lot of those bathtubs have been radicalized on the internet. I just want to point that out. (laughs) But second of all, so the problem with arguing that when you talk about the statistics, and I've said this before, you know, the Americans killed by ISIS, it's four or five. We know the names. I could tick off those poor aid workers. The ISIS people 
people killed by America. It's in the thousands. We have dropped thousands of bombs on them. And yet it's still said that we're losing the war to ISIS. Part of this is because the way we define winning a war is for America has to totally annihilate every threat. And them winning the war is they do anything to kill any of us. So that's really hard to win that kind of war. But the other thing is, I don't think most people argue it's what they are now, but they argue it's what they will be. So how do you argue against the perception that, yes, but it could metastasize and really come to harm us, and then your blasé attitude will be blamed for setting the groundwork for this imagined incursion or attack? Well, first of all, one can look historically, and other radical movements uh, in history, you know, going all the way back to the French Revolution, people used to fear this sort of contagion. And unless a revolutionary movement takes power in a great power, has real capabilities uh, behind it, it usually isn't contagious, it can't spread its message. And there's not much sign that ISIS is likely to spread like wildfire uh, around the world and suddenly become uh, a major power. Also, the, the territory ISIS controls is, doesn't have a lot of resources. It's mostly a worthless desert. It has no industrial power. And people make a lot of the money that they make, you know, selling oil or kidnapping people and various forms of extortion. Knocking over uh, banks. Exactly. Uh, you know, the estimates are that this amounts to, uh, you know, maybe a couple of million dollars a week. Yeah, richest uh, terrorist group in the world, they're called. Exactly. Well, that's rich for a terrorist group, but it's exceedingly poor for a country. Right. Uh, that just to put it in perspective, I, I teach at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Our, our weekly budget is about the same as the amount of revenues that ISIS is said to be taking in. And nobody thinks the Kennedy School is about to take over the world. And Fox um, News does, actually. <laughs> well, in any case, the point is that the danger here is that we scare ourselves, and we scare ourselves because there's lots of people out there who make money uh, or gain political power by keeping people as nervous as possible. Uh, that goes for, I think, most of the cable news channels, where the best way to get people watching is to have them worry about something. Uh, it also goes for lots of politicians who find the path to political power is to keep people scared, too. Yeah, but the problem is you're preaching vigilance. It's not like you're disagreeing with the idea of vigilance. It's just how you define it. Dick Cheney famously in uh, Ron Suskind's formulation called it the 1% doctrine. If there's a 1% chance the United States is going to be attacked or annihilated, they should do everything to stop that. There are a number of problems. Like, how does he know it's 1% and not 0.0001%? And, you know, what steps should we take to prevent this perceived 1%? Should it be, you know, dropping a couple bombs, which is relatively friction? or should it be what we did in Iraq, which is costing trillions of dollars and tens of thousands of lives? Well, the, the real danger in the sort of 1% doctrine type thinking is that it often leads you to do things that do more harm than the actual danger that you were allegedly protecting yourself against. So, you know, the worst thing that a foreigner has done to the United States in the last 20 or 30 years was obviously 9-11. Uh, you know, 3,000 or nearly 3,000 people killed and uh, between 100 and 200 billion dollars worth of damage and economic costs. So that was that was serious. 
But if you compare that with the cost of the Iraq War itself, more Americans died, uh, much more expensive, two or three trillion dollars. Or you compare that with the cost of the financial crisis, which was self-inflicted, then what happened on 9-11 is dwarfed by these other dangers. You pointed to there are a lot of people who make political hay or make money on perceiving the threats, but don't you think that there's just something inborn in our species? I mean, the reason that we're the survivors is probably because our ancestors were the first who perceived threats when we were threatened by, you know, predators in the Serengeti or whatever. Is there evidence that a species is just very good about, as you say, chilling out in this interconnected world where we learn and know all about these things and can see videos of beheading and if we want we can get very scared yeah there's certainly you know some evidence from neuroscience and evolutionary biology that human beings are sort of hardwired to react to threats Uh, but one of the reasons we develop political institutions and governments and things like that is so we have more intelligent ways of dealing with that and controlling some of our baser instincts but i think in the american case it actually has a lot to do with our history Uh, The fact that the United States has been an incredibly fortunate, lucky country for much of its history, the worst war we ever fought was the Civil War, war between the states, uh, not an external war. We've largely been protected. No foreign country has invaded us since 1812. That's 200 years. And there's no other major power that's had such a fortunate run. Therefore, when something bad happens to us, I I think we do tend to overreact to it. We see it as some complete uh, warping of the normal uh, way the universe is supposed to work. I think many other countries actually are more relaxed, or at least better able to calibrate uh, these dangers, because their own histories have uh, made them more accustomed, I guess, to the fact that the world is sometimes a dangerous place. Yeah, we're like the guy living in the rich gated community who's totally afraid of fear, as opposed to the person who actually lives in a bad neighborhood who knows how to acclimate himself to it. Yeah, it's not a bad analogy. Stephen Martin Walt is an American professor of international affairs at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government, and he advises us a good piece of advice, especially during these summer months. Chill out, America. Thank you, Professor Walt. Pleasure talking with you. This podcast is sponsored by Volvo. It's time to experience the wonder of summer. Leave early, get close, wander more, stargaze, do it all, have a month's payment on Volvo, and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. The wonder of summer event from Volvo. Go to volvocars.com US or test drive a Volvo at your local dealer. And now the spiel, the hem horror in chief. The U.S. Treasury has announced that the $10 bill will be showing Alexander Hamilton the treasury door and replacing him with a picture of a famous American woman from the past. Several famous American women from the present have weighed in on who that should be. Gloria Steinem said it should be Sojourner Truth. Raven Simone, yeah, sure, why not? Raven Simone said it should be Rosa Parks. The Jane Goodall Institute put forward, this is going to shock you, Jane Goodall. But the New York Times editorialized for a woman, but not on the 10. Take slave trading Indian killer Andrew Jackson off the 20 and leave Alexander Hamilton alone, they say. So Sacagawea and Susan B. Anthony, they had their time on currency, but yeah, it was dollar coins. And dollar coins are to America what the metric system and paying for a basket of rolls before dinner is to America. 
But Hillary Clinton, when asked if she preferred that there be another woman on a bill, said, well, better than Bill on another woman. Ah! And then she ripped off her mask to reveal she was the ghost of Jay Leno and began low-fiving the studio audience. Actually, you'll be glad to know that is not what she said. But you might be confused by what she actually did say. Have you given any thought to the woman who should be on the $10 bill? <laughs> um, you know, I am very torn about it. I want a woman on a bill. Um, I don't know why they picked the $10 bill. Um, some people are now agitating for the $20 bill. The 20 bill. Do you think that should be the 20 Yeah, uh, You know, I, I want a woman on the bill. And I, I think that um, it might be easier to change the 20 than it is to change the 10 but we'll see. Now, Vox, the website Vox, used this quasi-evasion as example number one in an article, Where Does Hillary Clinton Stand? Don't Ask Her. Vox argues this evasion shows, quote, her hesitance to stake out a position on anything that might not be remotely controversial. They say it feeds voters' perceptions that she's not honest and trustworthy. I don't think it quite does that. I mean, if she had said, who should be on the 10? I say Harriet Tubman on the front with an artist's rendition of Harriet Beecher Stowe standing in front of Uncle Tom's cabin on the back. No one would have reacted by saying, now there's a woman who did not lie about Benghazi. So I don't think such an answer would rebut the trustworthiness concern. But I think being clear has a lot of merits. I mean, take her evasions on emails. So frustrating. Even more frustrating recently, her simple refusal to say where she stands on the Pacific Trade Partnership. She endorsed it over and over again as Secretary of State. In fact, John Podesta, chairman of the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, was asked point blank by Chuck Todd on Meet the Press, does Hillary Clinton support the partnership? She's been very clear about where she stands on trade. She's laid out uh, a two-pronged test on uh, how to uh, look at trade agreements. Uh, first, does it grow jobs, grow wages, and protect American workers? And second, does it protect our national security? Uh, that's her position. Actually, that's not a position. That's some sort of wish list or best-case scenario, right? It's like, hey, do you eat meat? I eat food products that provide me with fuel and energy and second are locally sourced and in keeping with a helpful lifestyle. Right, so I'll what, put you down for the soy burger? Or my position on doubling down on a soft 15 against the dealer six must satisfy a two-pronged test. One, I want a card that will improve my chances of winning. Two, I have to be satisfied that upping the wager augurs well for future earnings. <laughs> okay, so John Podesta is not Hillary, and July of 2015 is not October of 2016, and the 20 isn't the Iranian deal. But frustrating isn't meaningless. The problem isn't one of truth, it's one of passion, one of clarity of vision. Will or can Hillary Clinton say meaningful, inspiring things that state her position and rally people to her cause? Because right now she's just playing the game as if her job is not to rally people away from it. That's good for the primary. Question is, can she flip the switch in the general election? Will she become a beacon or will she just stay fog? A couple of days ago, we played excerpts from a Rick Perry speech that was called The Speech of the Campaign, but which we judged to be only slightly different from the things Republicans usually say. But it was different. And Rand Paul has been saying some different things. Trump's been saying some different things, but different from sanity, not different from orthodoxy. 
In the Republican field, which will soon swell to 20 candidates, there are just a lot of ideas. There have to be a lot of ideas. Lots of them are bad ideas, but at least there are more ideas. Some are better ideas, and there are more ideas than you usually see in a primary field. Now, think about an ecosystem, right? Think about animals. If there are only a few animals competing for resources, their methods will be fairly conventional. But once you start introducing different species, you're going to get different unconventional ways to get at the resource. The ecosystem is a primary election, and the resource is your vote. So just like in the wild, some species use camouflage. In the Republican field, we're seeing some candidates don the mantle of religious conservatism, like Chris Christie saying he vetoed a Planned Parenthood bill because he's against abortion, even though every year in New Jersey he vetoed that same family planning bill and said it's because he's a fiscal hawk. So in animals, there's something called being a brood parasite. Cuckoos weasel their way, well, they cuckoo their way into the fold, push other birds' eggs out of the nest, and get resources from the mother. This is like how more radical candidates disguise themselves as Jeb Bush, tone down the family values stuff, and try to get resources from the Koch brothers. So 19 candidates, a lot of different mechanisms and adaptations for trying to get to these resources is leading to interestingness, interesting statements. Not so with Hillary Clinton. She is the apex predator in her ecosystem. The problem is, what happens when the ecosystem changes? When it's not just Democrats who pretty much dismiss Hillary Clinton's critics as unfair, sexist, or dishonest, and by the way, they might be, but when the ecosystem changes, that won't matter. Just look at the gray elephant, the silverback gorilla, the Javan rhino, megafauna all and their survival is greatly endangered. They lost the ability to adapt because they didn't have to adapt. They looked at the other smaller animals, the wildebeests, the silvery gibbon, the Lincoln chafees, and they just dealt with them with the flare of a nostril or the flick of a trunk. But eventually the entire ecosystem changed and the other invasive species, or man, could not be that easily dealt with, no matter the intentions of well-funded foundations as the Clintons themselves are learning, or like their flailing furry friends, not actually learning at all. That is it for the show today. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist, and she is not a Javan animal. The Javan animal she is least like is the Lanthanotis borninsis, or the earless monitor. A radio producer would make a terrible earless monitor. Joel Meyer is something of the Nesologus netcheri, or the Sumatran striped rabbit. Its fur is soft and dense, overlaid by longer, harsher hairs. Andy Bowers is the Strigococcus celebensis. Why is he an Indonesian possum, or the Sulawesi dwarf? Cuscus, a kind of Indonesian possum. Why? Cuscus, I said so. The gist. When you met me, I was your Anthopija duvinbodi, or the elegant sunbird. But now I am no more than your Bubbleus depressicornis, the Sulawesis lowland Anoa. Yeah, you compare me to a midget buffalo. It's a feeling I Anoa too well. Thanks for listening.